0: Faculty Factory here again. I'm Kim Skorupski with Dr. Luba Konopasik. Hi, Luba. Hi there, Kim. All right, Dr. Konopasik, guess how she got here? Again, great story. I was interviewing Dr. Lisa Coplett, who's been on the podcast twice now, episodes 233 and 236, and you might be saying, I don't know what 233 236 is, but let me tell you, um, episode 233 was building community with geographically dispersed faculty, right? So, so many of us increased through mergers and acquisitions, our our clinical footprint. And then episode 236 is podcasting as a tool for faculty inclusion with Dr. Lisa Coplett and Ruth Chen. So super cool talks. And during one of those recordings, who walks into Lisa's office, but Dr. Luba Kanapasic? And I said, who's that in the background? And Luba just came right up to the camera and waved and we started talking and I said, okay, bingo, guess what? Gotcha, someone else is gonna be on the podcast and here she is. She's super busy, over 250 emails waiting for her in her inbox and yet here she is sharing her wisdom. And we were talking, I said, all right, because you're an expert, oh, let, let let me back up and tell you who she is. You know, I know who she is, but you don't. Dr. Luba Konopasek, MD, is the Senior Associate Dean for Education at the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University, which is in Hamden, Connecticut. She oversees undergraduate and graduate medical education. She got her BA in biology from Brown, her MD from the Pritzker School of Medicine at University of Chicago, completed her training in pediatrics at Mass General, before she joined Netter, she was the director for physician engagement and well-being programs and the designated institutional official for New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York, overseeing graduate medical education at both Columbia and, and Wild Cornell campuses. So she was served a three-year term as associate dean for medical education at the Wild Cornell Medical College in Qatar. So a lot going on in Dr. Conopasic's portfolio. And I said, you know, you've done a lot. You you Google Dr. Luba kahn and you'll see the guidebook promoting well-being through her work with AC and GME. And then I said, you know, well-being is always important. It's a thread we want to pull through everything. I said, and you're such a great teacher and have all these teaching and education chops. And she said, well, guess what? What about how teaching can contribute to well-being or how does that work well together? And I thought, Winner, winner, chicken dinner, bingo, she hit it. So Luba, thanks for the coming to the podcast. And I can't wait to hear your two pearls of wisdom here, the day one conversation and arrows from a quiver Take it over.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for that warm introduction. And hello, everybody. Um, so medical education, pediatrician first, medical education nerd second, Um, And then I've done quite a bit of work around well-being. And so, yes, I'd love to talk about well-being and med ed. Um, As I'm sure, I imagine I'm talking to lots of educational leaders who spend a lot of time in influence management, trying to convince faculty to teach. Um, And some folks come to that with vigor and enthusiasm, uh, for some folks, it's a slightly heavier lift. Um, I will say that I have tremendous compassion. I think that every single year, um, as we think about clinical teaching and the pressures of clinical practice, um, it gets a little harder to find the time. And I think sometimes I've even heard people talk about the fact that you want to be protected from teaching, right? Like that oh. to me is horrifying. That's like a fall <laughs> off my chair. Um <laughs> Very unhappy moment when I hear that. And I guess my pitch is that um, where I sit at the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University, um, one of the cool things is that we are a community-based medical school. We've been um going this is we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. And um, we're in a relatively academic, notly naive learning environment. And The folks who come to teach with us really want to. And so one of the things that I've learned here is really about how how teaching can actually contribute to your well-being. And, and of course, I I saw that in my work at Columbia and Cornell, too. Um, But it's it's a little bit different here because it, it isn't necessarily what my faculty... Came on board to do initially. And I, I will also say that that was the case when I was in Qatar um, and we were bringing Hamad Medical Corporation in to be our first teaching hospital. Um, again, the folks that had come to practice at Hamad weren't necessarily planning to be um, engaging in residency training or teaching medical st- students. And I think that discovery of how can you teach in a way that actually promotes well being? Um, how can it bring joy to your? to your work um is is important. And I'm mindful that, you know, again, as we think about time, 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 time. And everyone is, you know, off, you know, everyone, your world around the world, people say, you know, I'd love to do it, but my goodness, I don't have time. So I have two tips that I think are useful as we think about efficient and effective teaching that will bring you joy. Um, And it will bring joy to your medical students also. That is really really critical, right? And this is really about reciprocal gain, right? So you're teaching them, they're happy, you're happy. That's kind of the the hope there. So the first thing I want to talk about is so easy. It's the day one conversation. Um, And it's something that we can so easily overlook and it can, you know, like less than five minutes and it will make all the difference to a learner. So the day one conversation is actually my first ever faculty development workshop that I had at the Council on Medical Student Education and Pediatrics, COMCEP. Uh, pediatricians in the room, pediatric educators, huge shout out to COMCEP. It's the Pediatric Clerkship professional home, if you will. So uh, back in 1997, first ever, I didn't even know that there were faculty development workshops to tell you the truth. Um, and I remember there was a woman and I don't actually think she was an MD. I think she was, um, you know, a real doctor, a PhD. Um, and um, she gave us these very s- simple, simple rules. And I want to share them with you because you can share these easily with your faculty and again it makes all the difference to the learner. So it's the it's a it's a sort of a structured introduction just sitting with the learner and introducing yourself um making sure you know who the the learner is and part of that also is just asking them having that spirit of interest in the learner what have they done so far just getting a sense of who they are um what might they be interested in? And of course, if it's a clerkship, generally people might tell you that they're interested in whatever your area of expertise is or your specialty, that's fine. Um, but I still think that 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 um, that question of what is it that, that you've done so far, what have you been interested in is really important. Um, and again, it just takes a few minutes and it demonstrates your commitment to them and to their learning. And I'm sure, I mean, I know I personally have overlooked this vital step when you're in the midst of a busy situation, either in the outpatient or inpatient setting. setting. Um, The next thing that's really useful is just identifying the basic ground rules of engagement with you in the learning and, and then in the clinical space. And I think one of the things, especially with learners transitioning from year one and two of medical school into more clinically focused learning is knowing their their place, <laughs> how to engage in learning in the clinical space and how to engage with you. So even letting them know, when are they going to see you? How does your day generally go? And that's awesome, because in a few minutes, you can both sort of decrease a whole bunch of uncertainty for them. But the other thing you're doing at the same time is you're actually teaching them about your specialty, right? Because one of the things they're doing is they're learning in your specialty, and they're making really important career decisions. So that is good. So again, so number one, introductions, number two, some ground rules. So kind of what's your schedule? What's your expectation for their responsibilities? And I think that sometimes kind of goes without saying. We think that they they must know what their responsibilities would be, but actually that's not the case. So just the, you know, giving them a sense for the pace of things and what you might expect for of them, um, and how you're gonna supervise them. That's right, critical for patient safety. Um, uh is is really um. Uh, important. and then the other thing that I find really helpful I always do this with, when I teach this to the residents um if it is quiet and it feels like nothing is going on, where should you be so that I can find you when something is going on? And again, it's just a simple small thing. you're giving them permission and to 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 be you know to be studying for instance if there's not too much going on um, and at the same time you you know you, you're decreasing quite a bit of uncertainty for them because there's always that tension right like let's be clear when you start on a clinical clerkship especially in your 3 especially now in um in the US sort of our big differentiating exam, the step one um, has gone past fail. And now everyone is very, very worried about doing super, super well in year three, which frankly, I think of year three is critically important in the professional identity formation for a student and they're not acquiring their knowledge and skills. And part of that is engaging with patients. And part of that also is of course um, reading and, and learning. Um, so we talked about introductions we talked about ground rules if you can take a moment to ask them about their learning goals what are they currently working on it is super helpful um and you know you might even consider sharing some of you know the, your own things that you were working on when you were at their age and stage if you can remember give them some examples um I actually also sometimes share with my students what I'm working on because I want to demonstrate to them that this is a lifelong learning process. Um, and finally, the very last thing is review the timeline. So I will be working for you for the for the next week. Halfway through, I'm going to just have a very brief conversation with you to give you a little um, midweek feedback. And at the very end, I'll meet with you at the very end just to tell you about my impression of how things are going and your plans for learning um, for the next weeks on the clerkship. So again, day one conversation. Really, I don't know, Kim, I don't know how much time I just spent on explaining that, but how many how many minutes do you think that was? Was that like less than yeah. so five, I'm hoping? Yeah, so I guys. think the reality is, is that, I explained all around it, but if you have that conversation, it takes about less than five minutes. Okay? Right. So, so that's the day one conversation. And at this moment, Kim, is there, I, I, actually, I don't know, is this permitted? Can I ask you from, from my conversation, I saw you nodding vigorously. Yes. Um, was there anything that particularly resonated for you in the day one conversation? Well, Luba, so delightful.
0: I, I, I love the engagement. I love your energy. And yeah, a lot of things flying through this pea brain of mine. And I'll say two, two, two thoughts. The first was, oh my gosh, Luba sounds like she's describing an ideal coaching session and coaching Got experience. <laughs> Being curious, because as coaches, we're taught to be curious and non-judgmental. So when you said, you know, ask about the be you know be interested in the learner that was I'm like oh that's the introduction, uh, Luba I'm the I'm the coach tell me a little about, a bit about you what have you done so far to get you to this position and I understand you're trying to interview for a position of a dean at Saint Louis University um what what about that interest you tell me more about what you've done to this point let me get to know you and then ground rules well we're going to be working together Luba over the next say six months as you go through this process let me tell you how I like to work I want to know you know, when we'll meet each other, how we'll meet each other, how we'll engage, and then setting this pace in the culture. This is the expectations I would have for you. And what are your expectations for me that you'll be doing some homework, you'll be thinking about things, setting the culture, how we do this coaching relationship. And if if it's quiet, and I'm here from you, you know, how can you get in touch with me if you need me? Here's my text number. Here's my phone calls. This is the parameters where I Go to bed at nine thirty, but anything between five in the morning and nine thirty, I'd be yours. I'd be available to you. And then the goals, you know, what are we going to work on through this So relationship? You know, what do you want to work on? Your your presence, your public presence, your confidence. So those everything you're describing said to me, wow, what a wonderful coach Luba is. You know, we mentoring, coaching, sponsoring, but you were describing the core of just being curious and interested in um, establishing a relationship that made me think of immediately and then a pause here before it flies out of my brain the second thing that made me think of because I'm si- as you can see I'm sitting here holding a 13 pound Bichon Prise mix Foster dog who I got a couple of days ago on my lap and I'm thinking gosh this is the same thing about uh, the proper care and feeding of, of foster mm-hmm. animals is hey tell me about you Izzy what kind of dog are you what is she's looking to be what are you interested in here are the ground rules. This is where I work. It has to be quiet. This is where you eat. This is the toy box. Uh responsibilities of what I of how sitting and properly behaving and how I'm gonna engage with her. And our goals are to get you adopted, but to learn to have, you know, you know, get along with other dogs. So all these kind of that's all relationship building, right? And it all yeah, takes absolutely. time. And it's that's the kind of the, the cuckoo crazy pets point too was. It's about fostering dogs too. And it all to me comes down to relationships. Voila, that's all. Isn't that education and leadership and just life is establishing and building authentic relationships?
1: (laughs) So I love that. And I will tell you that where I sit as someone who's very interested in transitions and transitions from college to medical school, from year one, two to year three, four, Um, And really creating a very successful day one resident or a successful day one fellow or a successful day one attending position or someone in practice. Um, So I'm I'm really interested in that. And I think to your point, being coachable is kind of key to that. Um, And so I think one of the things that we're doing is creating learners who are coachable and and adaptable to their various phases of their professional um lives if you will and I, and i think that's an important part also for well-being
2: because
1: mm-hmm. you know when i think about well-being i think about well-being kind of across the continuum and the habits of practice that we foster throughout um throughout the, that educational continuum and so it's interesting. I, I just was like out at evaluating one of our new sites um, that we were going to start one of our uh, clerkships at, and one of the things that struck me was the joy of the physician practicing there, um, and that actually makes a really big difference to the learners, right? So I think the 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 when we're talking about well being, that day one conversation, again, it's reciprocal gain. You're going to be helping that that student gain, have a sense of well-being and care for, and the fact that you're committed to coaching them. And at the same time, you're going to get the, the, the the sort of the gain of, of providing that coaching. Um, so yeah, ideally this would be a lovely circle of, of everyone thriving um, in the, in the clinical learning environment um, and really important in creating a welcoming atmosphere. That's something that we're working on um, as part of our learning environment um, and how we foster a, a, a one that's most conducive to learning. So so thank you. Um, next thing that I want to talk about is um, the arrows from a quiver model. And I have to tell you, again, I learned that through ComCEP. Um, I learned it through Rich Sarkin, who's a, a the president of the presidents um, of ComSEP. Um, and he learned it through from Luanne Wilkerson. So I love the, um, who's uh, a, I think she's an associate dean for evaluation and faculty development at Dell now. Um, and, and I love, you know, I think one of the things in medicine, we sometimes don't think about kind of our, the, the pedigree of these ideas, if you will. Um, and I, I love to think about how we learn from each other. Um, and move and carry it forward. So the arrows from a quiver, quiver model, I think, is is so helpful in giving folks permission to adapt their teaching. Right. So um, the idea is that just like if you had, if you were going to engage in archery and you had a quiver of arrows, you might have different arrows related to. Different archery skills. I'm not even sure, but I think that's the idea. Um, I personally, no matter what arrow I have, it's likely not going to hit the target, but that's okay. Um, I I do think that there are ways, at least in medical education, that that we can make the arrows hit the target a little better, um, and we can be deliberate about our selection of teaching strategies. So, and and I'm also mindful of. I think one of the things that's so hard about higher education in general is that we get very focused on our area of content expertise. Um, and we aren't necessarily taught the process of teaching and learning, right? And that's, of course, Kim is all about faculty development. Um, without it, I think we are at risk for sort of being an arrested development for however we were taught. And whether that was good or bad, probably we're going to teach that same way. So this is about being deliberate and making deliberate um, selections of, of one of these three kinds of, um, of teaching strategies based on the expertise of your learner and the acuity or complexity of the patient. And I will also add to that how much time you have. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, um, so, there's sort of three ideas based on um, how much t- how much time you have and and also again that that um, complexity of the patient and the expertise of your learner. So the first thing to do, and this is so simple, at the door, find out actually what the expertise of your learner is. So have you ever seen a patient like this before? Is a great question. Hmm. It's a great doorway question as you're figuring that out. Um, but once you've sort of established that, let me just go through these three, um, kinds of ways that you might consider teaching. So the one where you have a complex patient, very little time, and, um, maybe a very novice, um, student or learner is you want to bring them along with you. And I want to tell you that, um, In the U.S., the idea of being an observer as a clinical learner, kind of, I already see, if you guys could see Kim, she's like shaking her (laughs) head, she's looking unhappy. Um, And I will say that there are other parts of the world where there's a lot of observation that's part of um, clinical teaching. So my pitch there is there's something called activated observation um, and an activated observation at that doorway, you actually take a moment again to find out, have you ever seen a patient like this before? And then think about a high yield observation that they can make with you in the room. I'll just share one of my own experiences. So I was deeply committed to teaching my learners communication skills. And so I would always want to bring my my residents in and resident clinic when I was, you know, my perception being especially brilliant and navigating a very complex communication skill. And sometimes I would look over at the resident, and the resident would literally be looking out the window at York Avenue, you know, Cornell, the east side. There's lots of things to look at outside. And I would think to myself, but you're missing this incredible opportunity to learn from my very sophisticated (laughs) communication skills. What I realized was I hadn't tethered them in any way to what I was doing. And frankly, they weren't engaged. And frankly, it was boring. And frankly, you know, if, if someone asked me to watch, say, I don't know, luge practice or I don't know, ski jumping, I'd be like, wow, that's amazing how high they're jumping. But I would have no idea. I'd have nothing to really hold on to Mm -hmm. to figure out how to do any of that myself. Mm -hmm. So in activated observation, you actually identify the thing that you would like the students to observe, not the whole thing, but the key thing based on their learning edge, if you will. And then you have them observe you. And then when you leave the the office, you just take a few minutes to debrief what they saw and what they learned and what their opportunities are for learning going forward. Activated observation, Mm. easy peasy, lemon squeezy, takes so little time and makes all the difference. Rather than having the learner be like a quote unquote fly on the wall and just perhaps be a very disengaged fly in the wall, looking at something (laughs) completely different. So that's activated observation. Um, So that's that's skill number one, right? So that's your first arrow. The second is imagine this same learner, and now. You're actually seeing another patient. Let's just say it was a patient with asthma. At this point, they've seen you do, say, counseling on asthma meds. Now you have an opportunity to let them do it in front of you. This is, again, this is coaching, Kim. This is simple coaching. Um, and then this is more like performance-based coaching. Um, so the next sort of arrow from the quiver that you might select is one where they're with you, but you give them some small part of the um, encounter to do themselves for you to watch and provide feedback on when you leave the room, right? So that's your, your second. So that's direct observation with feedback, right? So when a learner knows a little bit more, but you don't want them to be necessarily doing everything on their own. And the third, of course, and this is the model that we're so used to in clinical education in the U.S. is when students go and do um, and really evaluate the the um, learners go and evaluate the patient on their own and then come back to do a um, to present to you, um, and so there um, in the presentation. Um, my pitch there, there are all different ways to do a a presentation. I'm sure you guys have done the one minute preceptor. I want to, um, I want to suggest to you one other thing as an arrow, which is the five W's. And here I'm going to give a shout out to Joe Lopriato from USIS who taught me this. And this is the, the first W is the, what do you think is going on? The second W is why do you think it's happening? The third is what if this was a little bit different? What would you think then? The fourth is a warm fuzzy. So um, that that's uh, a this was something that you did well. And the fifth is a whoops, which is the you know, this is a this is something that I saw you you working on little feedback around that and i actually have a six w which for me is what is your next question on this patient what are you going to learn about this patient when you go home so oh. so mm-hmm. those are my three little arrows from a quiver again number one activated observation that is when you have a complex patient um a a novice learner or maybe very little time and you just want to bring the learner in with you the second is the um, direct observation with feedback, right when you're when you want to give the learner to do something in front of you. and the third is the case-based discussion. Uh, the case-based discussion where um, you have a more expert learner, um, perhaps a, a patient that is less complex where they're able to go do um, uh, the history and physical on their own and then need to present to you. And of course, you're going to be supervising them and you're going to be back in the room with them. So perhaps there's an observ- there's an opportunity to go back and choose another arrow and either do an activated observation or a direct observation with feedback. So those are my, my two tips, the day one conversation and arrows from a quiver um, combined with a little bit of five Ws. And
0: the sixth of it, I like your sixth, what's next? I can tell you are a phenomenal teacher because I love the way you start off saying, this is what we're going to talk about, these two things. Then you told us what you're going to talk about. And then in both instances, you went back and summarized. So I can already tell you are phenomenal and your learners must just adore working with you.
1: Well, thank you, Kim.
0: I love it. Um, I was curious as you were talking about the the quivers, is, I imagine it's not linear. I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who is maybe not, doesn't have the confidence. So maybe you're doing the direct observation. Would you go right then to the case presentation? Like when do you, as an educator, know when someone has the confidence to go into the, the case presentation? Um, or do you kind of put those in parallel tracks?
1: I mean, I think for me, Kim, I I really appreciate that question, um, and I I don't know I have a if I have a one size fits all answer. Um, I think some of it is is again understanding who your learner is. I will tell you that certainly in the U.S. system, we're we're very focused on getting out of that observership model as quickly as possible, right? And part of that also is in our system, you need to be able to do something so that we can actually evaluate you. Right. So if you're only doing activated observations, how are you actually going to be assessing what your learner can do? It's a good teaching system. It's a good teaching arrow. But it, it would be, you know, I, I think what I could get from that arrow is is this person engaged with me? Are they, you know, are they coachable? But 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 you're not actually going to be able to um, understand their ability to provide patient care. Mm-hmm. Um so I as quickly as possible, I try to move our learners into more of the other two arrows so that they are actively engaged themselves mm-hmm. of course with appropriate supervision and you know the direct observation with feedback again if we can move to more of a coaching um, model um i i think it's it's really important and mm-hmm. to your point of when are they ready well generally i, I you know a- another piece for me is making sure that they have the self-efficacy to feel that they can that they can go in and do the work. I think, you know, that's such an important part. Again, it's a well-being part, right? So you you want to really make sure that you are respecting their knowledge and their not, you know, their degree of being a novice also. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think, you know, as soon as you can engage them in a safe way in patient care, um safe for them intellectually, and also safe for the patient, um, in terms of, of quality and patient safety. Um, that is good. And, you know, I also tell them, it may feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's okay. We all feel that way. And even now, I feel uncomfortable sometimes. That's okay. Um, and I'm there, I have your back, I'm there to support you.
0: And that that is what is so beautiful about your approach, because that day one conversation. I think right. that's where you are getting to know the learner, know what her or his goals are, knowing her strengths, what she or he is interested in authentically. So when that is what I think is so, is so important and just, um, fundamental to the quiver concept that you will have, you as a educator will have greater confidence picking the right quiver because you've taken the pausing moment to say, okay, wait a minute. This is Kim. That's right. She said she was very familiar with asthma. She was she has asthma. She has family members with asthma. So right. with this, we can go right to the case presentation, grow her confidence. She was not as familiar with the pediatric uh, leukemia case, and she's a little bit you know, uneasy, doesn't have confidence there. We're going to grow her expertise there. So I think what I love about your approach is that authentic interest and curiosity, of the learner so that you together, you have a positive experience with a learner and they have that sense of safety, the well-being of knowing that Dr. Luba's got me. She knows, and she purposely picked that situation for me because she is, I see where she's going and she knows that my goal is to gain more confidence in. So she walked back the other child um, to give me that grow my confidence. So I think that, that trust and that, um, the reciprocity, the reciprocal gain, as you talked about earlier, Luba, um, would helps has to be on both ends, you feel good because you see the growth and development and confidence in the learner. The yep. learners feel safe with you and vulnerable. And so that's what I love is the preceding the import of that day one conversation that it's not, it will never be time wasted ever. Right. when we take a moment, take a beat as busy as we are, to look at another human being, and you used an, a, a lovely word, compassion, that a mother, Frisina Koch, uh, was on the podcast recently. She talked about physicians as compassionate human beings. And you said the same word, compassion. So that's the word of the day for me is compassion. So I love the marrying of both of those concepts. You're, you're so good.
1: Well, I, I really appreciate it, Kim. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I also appreciated was how you took the example to our own professional development, right? And you took it into the how we would coach someone um, as a in terms of faculty development. And, and the reality is that all of these things apply to all of us, right? We're constantly learning, we're constantly on our learning edge, we're managing uncertainty. Um, and and I think it's it's, you know, and and I hope we're engaging in self-compassion when we don't mm. get it right, right?
0: Mm. Mm. That's the other
1: part of all of this.
0: Oh my gosh! And you know what is so fundamental to, Again, back to education. It just kind of when you told the story up front, when someone says, "Oh, I need to buy out of my teaching load this semester," or if I can only get get offload that, you kind of get the little dagger in the heart because we're in academia. For gosh sakes, academia—that is the—it's the root of the word somewhere in there—is education. We're teachers,
1: yeah. so, and and I... is, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say though, I mean again, my most of my career at influence management, getting people to do things for our students, for me, for nothing, um except for you know, and we talk about, you know, is it for your heart? Is it to make you happy? Is it for a little bit of money? Is it for your future professional um, you know, advancement if you will. I'm very mindful that nowadays when I have faculty who are doing all their charting at night and it's pajama time, it's this is really tough. So I have a lot of compassion for that, right? Like I, I think Kim and you and I are probably roughly the same age. Like things weren't different back in the day in terms of, of time that you would have and discretionary effort. Um, and so that's why I think that being more deliberate And maybe teaching a little differently than we were taught. Mm -hmm. Um, And also feeling that part of our responsibility is our own well-being and the well-being of others, right? And the how we teach, like there's no amount of yoga or apple picking that's going to compensate for our less than optimal learning environment, right? So um, I think it's all like really tied less than optimal learning
0: environment to me yes less than optimal human environment these yeah fundamental concepts of the curiosity and relationship building apply yep. to staff growing and developing our staff our team members yep. our children our colleagues the whole thing of getting to know one on a one day day one conversation and to me again the metaphor goes beyond that is let's make sure we're taking time to know each other to, with our colleagues yep. in the lab, in the clinic, in the examination, yep. room. taking time and then stage two figuring out what is, some, if someone was on your team, a staff person, you know, what is her expertise H- having her own part of the project of running the event, um, having her, you know, debrief the event. It. All these right, It right. can be applied in so many different areas of life, but, it's just so fundamental. So uh, thanks for reminding us of both of these and sharing. I love the why, the what, the why, the what's different, the warm and fuzzy and the whoopsie. I love the whoopsie. And most importantly, Luba, yours, what is next? The next goal. Let's always be working We're in this together. Let's build. I love it. Well, Dr. Luba Pasic, you have been phenomenal, as I totally suspected, and I am so appreciative there's no such thing as coincidence. When you poked your head in that office and you sat down uh-huh. and I saw that face, I knew it. I knew you were going to be here, and I'm so grateful to you, as is, I'm sure, the international community listening to the Faculty Factory podcast. I'm going to be quiet for real. Last word is Luba.
1: Oh, my goodness. Just I want to thank you for the space. Um you know, having this conversation is always an opportunity for learning. and i I think that sort of bringing it all together, having you put it into the, into a slightly different context was really helpful to me. So thank you. Oh. um, really appreciate it. Um, thank you to everyone listening out there. um and um I hope that this contributes to your well-being because it contributed to mine. Thank you so much, Luba. If you want to be on the faculty faculty podcast, Just go to facultyfactory.org
0: and shoot me an email. See you next time on the podcast.
2: Hi everyone, it's your podcast producer, Casey Calnan. Just wanted to let you know that as of February 1st, 2024, this podcast has had more than 87,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners and viewers in 95 different countries. And the Faculty Factory website, facultyfactory.org, has drawn nearly 41,000 web visitors from users in 122 different countries. It's truly an international platform, and we would love to invite you to be a guest on our show. Our host, Dr. Kimberly Skorupski, makes the experience very engaging, relaxing, fun. It is a great experience. As producer, I'll make the edits, so if you need to have any edits on the back end, I'm happy to do that for you. No pressure to nail the interview on the first shot, or if there's a mistake, or even a friendly dog barking in the background, we'll take care of that. So please reach out to us if you would like to be a guest or nominate someone in our academic medicine community to be a guest. You can visit the contact us page on facultyfactory.org to send us a message, or you can contact Dr. Skorupsky our host, directly by emailing her at kskorupski at jhmi.edu. Thanks for tuning in to
0: Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement